figure out how to do it. <laughs> it's not like riding a bike, people. Mm-mm. <laughs> it ain't easy. It ain't easy being greasy. For those people that are listening, I think it's important to note that we don't record these and then immediately release them. I force Michael and Stephanie to record about every three to four weeks, twist their arm, right? And so in that way, we just naturally have a couple in the chamber ready to go just in case something comes up like, you know, someone gets sick or someone goes on vacation. So we don't have to stress about, oh, man, we don't, we don't have any content to release. So that just seems to work out better for us. It's a lot less stressful. I was kind of thinking the other day, and <laughs> this might just be me being weird, <laughs> but I have this, maybe it's an OCD thing. I don't know. But I, I have this fear of being walked in on in the restroom <laughs> while I'm using it. <laughs> so I'm always constantly kind of like looking towards the door and mm. I'm like anticipating someone just like grabbing the handle <laughs> and walking in like, oh, and then just like being shocked and I have to almost pretend like I'm shocked that I wasn't expecting them when I, I was. Uh-huh. I'm just uh-huh. always perpetually trying to be ready for that. <laughs> because I feel like if I wasn't if I wasn't ready for it, then I would just be so horrifically embarrassed that uh-huh. I would just die. <laughs> there on the spot, just exactly. RIP. Now that we're we're talking it over, I I definitely think it's an OCD thing because I do this thing where I'll check the handle. You and, and it's, it's the, <laughs> the the lock where you push right. it in. Yeah, it's the button. Right, right, right. And so uh-huh. I'm I'm always glancing at it and I'm like, did I lock it? Oh, it looks like it's it's locked, but maybe maybe I didn't push it in all the way. Like maybe it's only like half pressed, <laughs> and so it's not quite mm-hmm. the lock mechanism isn't engaged. You know, mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of what I'm I'm fixated on. I'm just thinking, you know, if someone were to walk in on me, should I? Should I try to like, I don't know, maybe maybe turn to the side so that way it's like (laughs) less things to see? I don't know. Like I'm more hidden. Like should I strike like a a Jeff Goldblum pose or something? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Hi. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, you could definitely do that. I don't know. But I'm thinking, so do you think that would be more embarrassing than walking in on someone else unexpectedly? <laughs> like, which which do you think would be worse? I don't know which would be more embarrassing, honestly. I, I... Like, have be, you ever walked in on someone? To be the... Uh, no, no, but I was I was party to somebody. Actually, no, I did. I did walk in. Wait, yeah, there was one memory of me walking in on my cousin, and I was maybe like six. And, and were, you, uh, were you just like completely embarrassed? Um. For a moment, yeah, my heart just like leapt into my throat because <laughs> she was just horrified. I mean, we were just kids too, but she was just like, yeah. she was like, Michael, and then like slammed the door. It was like right there. Near, she could she reach right it. The door. Yeah, she oh, was okay. right. It was a tiny little house. It was my grandma's house. And we sure. were all just like, I didn't even know. she And she didn't lock the door. So yeah, just that's pretty horrific. But uh, yeah. And then I had a coworker who just wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um when I was working at Apple, walk in on he walked in on my customer. I had showed her where the restroom was, and and she forgot to lock it. Evidently, uh, yeah, she <laughs> said, yeah, because I'm walking out of the other door where I brought brought her in, so I'm walking back toward the where the sales floor is. And my guy that I just said, hey, somebody's somebody's in there, and he's like, mm, he's just still like looking down at his phone, and uh, he he opens the door to the bathroom and she she goes she goes i think she like she didn't scream but she definitely said something she like burst something and then all of a sudden he goes he looks up and he goes oh god 
oh god and he like just so melodramatic turns around storms out like maybe even overly dramatic right yeah over way overly dramatic and so I which like, i think oh. might make it worse because it's drawn attention to what's happening when you don't accept the situation i think that, that that's like a rejection of it happening he's like no oh my god this didn't just happen right now <laughs> oh god oh god and then he like walked out and then and also what are you supposed to do when someone knocks on the door and they're just like what's the etiquette for that i usually just stay quiet because <laughs> they get the idea you knock on the door they twist uh-huh. the handle it's locked they're like okay someone must be in there i don't know I'll just say someone's in here that's all or do you just let one rip and then they get the idea <laughs> All right, well, what do you think? Should we mob? Let's mob it, dude. Let's mob. Let's mob it. <laughs> That's going to be the, the new way of uh, me asking you if we're ready to go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's mob it. How are you doing, everybody? Welcome to Afflictionados Podcast, Episode 9. My name is Eric, and the other voice occupying your head this time is my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Michael. Yo, 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 yo. Thank you all tuning in to this episode. Affliction Oz is a monthly podcast where we mainly talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. Occasionally, we may also cover TV shows or other forms of media. It goes without saying, we will be getting into spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives tossed in, so you have been warned. <laughs> now, if you ain't ready, then get ready, because in today's episode, it's all about the 2021 remake of Dune. Yeah. Let's hydrate and stand walk in this episode. Much like our other episodes, let me warm up everyone with uh, the synopsis. So Dune tells the story of Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, who must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity capable of unlocking humanity's greatest potential, only those who can conquer their fear will survive. Well done. Let me ask you, did you actually watch any of the other Dunes or was this your one and only? Negative Ghost Rider. I haven't seen any of, any of the others either, but there was something about this movie specifically that was just kind of, I don't know, it was it was calling to me, man. When I saw that trailer, I was like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, same. Chills. Chills. I had seen or had heard of the David Lynch version and how the the effects, I think it was, um, were... In the costumes, the kind of the world that was that they created was was kind of ahead of its time. I know that it was not a um, not a financial success. I know that it, I heard it wasn't that great. It just depends. I don't. Not everybody's a David Lynch fan. And again, having not seen it myself, I, I can't really say either way. But there's so much potential, and so many. It's been talked about for so long. The novels uh, are are just uh, highly regarded. So I was when when I saw this trailer for it, I thought, wow, the time has finally come when they're going to actually, you know, do it. They're going to actually make the one that everyone had hoped they would make. I, I hope it meets the expectations. Um, and yeah, seeing the trailer, I was blown away the the entire cast was was awesome. And I don't think it took anything away. Typically, I, I don't know. I feel I have mixed feelings about trailers. You can only take these trailers with a grain of salt because I got roped in so many times for the Transformer movies. I'm like, the trailer looks awesome. This time around, it's it's going to be a lot better than the last. It's going to be a lot better. And every single time, I'm like, oh, I, I regretted watching that movie. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's 
I'm always skeptical about good trailers. Actually, you know, right before we start recording, I, I was telling you I went back and watched it, and I still think it's a pretty badass trailer. Honestly, there was mm. some misleading elements in the trailer, though, because right out the gate they start showing Zendaya, like she's going to be a focal point in this episode or in this uh, half of the movie. Uh, spoilers! It's a it's a two parter, but um, yeah, in this this portion of the story, she's like virtually non-existent you know but she's very prominent in the trailer and she even she's like monologuing through most of the trailer anyway and you don't even see the actual main character which is paul atreides until like the the second half of the trailer so i thought that was kind of a an interesting direction that they they want to take with the trailer mm-hmm. yeah i wonder what their thought was behind that do you feel like that that could be misleading or do you think they they just felt Right now, she she's hot. No, oh, she like is hot. The, the, on top of that, um, she's on top. <laughs> you know, she's on everyone's mind, and she's been popping up and getting a lot of recognition for yeah. her acting. And I wonder Shout if out. they just they wanted to capitalize on that, or if they legitimately wanted to kind of hit that swerve on the audience. Right, right. And for those of you who've been sleeping on Euphoria on HBO, go out and check it out. She kills it. She does kill it. So yeah, um, having seen. Euphoria, and then um, yeah, when she came onto the screen, I was I was really excited. I couldn't wait to see her on screen. So yeah, it was interesting. They didn't really give her much, but looking forward to seeing how they um, how she does in the second one. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, Hopefully, she has a lot her. more FaceTime in the second one because if she basically just does nothing in the second movie, I'm going to be a little annoyed by that because she is such a great actress. And, you, and you want to see more from her, you know, and I, I kind of felt like that that was an element of the movie that was missing. I was like, where, where the fuck is Zendaya? Like she she was in the trailer, but it's mm-hmm. like she's nowhere to be seen. Right. I mean, they do show her quite frequently throughout the movie. Just just at, at in flashbacks, right? Periods, like right. In flashbacks, or, brief or flash forwards, as it were. Flash forwards. Yeah. <laughs> just like brief little uh, snippets right of his right. vision and that's premonitions mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of interesting if we get into that piece of the of the movie um this whole thought of these premonitions uh because as as was um so eloquently put um in that uh, synopsis the uh, paul Trades character he has he's gifted um, in ways that not not a lot of people, in fact, no one else really is. He's just training. He's learning to use the voice, um, which in a in a theater it just rocks. If so, if you if you <laughs> have, I mean, if you don't see it or had, didn't see it in theaters, I highly recommend spending a lot of money <laughs> on uh, on like a sound bar or <laughs> or just create your own movie theater in your house. Yeah, create for an the, actual movie for theater. the optimal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tune into the DIY channel. Uh, just go maybe on YouTube and look up how to build your own theater in your house because. There was just so much to appreciate in the movie. And not, again, just the that's just the sound quality itself. I mean, then that just every little detail was was handled so well. I think in the movie, I I, I wouldn't be surprised if it does win several Academy Awards. Um, not only for the acting, of course, but for just sound engineering and editing and all that. Because I, I think that it was fucking phenomenal. There are a lot of people hating on it, though. I, I'm I'm part of this cinephile group on Facebook, and every anytime someone mentions Dune 2021. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, sorry, you had to see that or that piece of shit movie, this and that. I don't know. Oh, what, I wonder- like, what, where do you think this hatred even comes from? 
I was going to ask you because I haven't I haven't really read those message boards. Have they substantiated like what their what their reasons are for why they didn't like it? A lot of people are saying it was boring. A lot of people are saying it was just <laughs> overhyped, and uh, and a lot of people were making fun of the fact that so it's been mentioned that the movie has great CGI, but then they they go around and say so you think Dune is a masterpiece because of the CGI, but then you look at Avengers Endgame and you shit on it because it's just an Avengers movie. But it also has great CGI. So I think that's their argument is like, why does this one get hit so hard? And then everyone is just, you know, losing their shit over Dune. I'm not surprised that the people who who appreciate or love those uh, Marvel, those MCU type movies, I'm not surprised that they are so against Dune. It seems that it's just so much more in your face, the MCU movies. They're just so um, overtly... Like, ah, look at this special effect. Look at this thing. Oh, look. It's his kind shield of excessive, comes right? Back. Oh, yeah. It's it's ultra excessive to the point where there's nothing. I mean, less is more. Everybody knows this. Less is more. It's I prefer subtlety. And so when I see those special effects, that blows me away to see that those massive sand worms or mm. whatever. I, I, I don't even know if that's the appropriate name for it. But yeah. When you see it, it's fucking believable. It's frightening. Whereas On top if- of that, I, uh, to to kind of back up your your point here, when they're showcasing their beautiful CGI in the movie, it's it's spread out a lot better because a lot of it is just natural beauty of the setting, right? Like when they're on that lush planet, it's gorgeous, you know. And it, it a lot of it is just like normal everyday grass and hills and whatnot. It's not mm-hmm. anything extravagant. Until you see like this fancy spaceship come in, and then mm-hmm. you're—that's when you marvel at like, oh wow, that, that looks beautiful. So it's not just constantly, you know, explosions and lasers and flashing lights all <laughs> over the place. Right. It's just not spectacle for spectacle's sake, and that's the dis- that's the distinction I would draw between the movie Dune and something like Endgame. There is real. What would I say? I feel like there's more. There's more gravitas. It's just so much because it's so much more quiet. There's a there's a weight to it. When I say gravitas, I mean like there's a heaviness there. And there are moments of levity, right? Like when mm-hmm. Javier Bardem spits on the ground and they take that to be an offense and they're about to like fight and then <laughs> they they realize, oh, this is this is actually a sign of of camaraderie, of of, of openness. Moisture is such a rare commodity to have on that planet it's just so, of Arrakis. It's so precious. So you don't just waste it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So to, for him to do that, um, understood in that context. Yeah, at first, it's just, you know, so it's that whole moment we, we appreciate the fun, I think, I forget which comedian said this, but they said something like there's, there will never be anything funnier than misunderstandings. And <laughs> isn't it? It's and, and I thought that that was so flippant to say, like, oh, it's just a passing thing, whatever. But it's it drilled a, it drilled like a it was like a mind worm it, it stuck around in my head so that whenever I'd see things like this that it, it kind of fits that paradigm where it's a misunderstanding right so then when people understand when they realize oh because they get pissed right everybody in the theater even gets pissed and and of course this was done intentionally sure. um, so Denis uh, Vienu Villeneuve um, yeah he um, they do this all on purpose. It, it, it was done this way to get everybody riled up too, because we know spitting at somebody's feet means like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, let's fight. Uh, and so everyone just like, yeah, oh man, this guy, this is about to go down. And mm. then all of a sudden, uh, you know, what's his name? Duncan. Jason, Idaho. Yeah. Jason Momoa's character, Duncan, Idaho. Uh, Idaho is that his name? <laughs> yeah. Something like Unfortunately. <laughs> Duncan, Duncan. Um, yeah. He, he like holds them back into, and, and, 
basically tells him that he appreciates it and spit. They all spit in kind um, to reciprocate. But but everyone had in the theater both times that I saw it had a, a good chuckle. You know, they oh mm. yeah yeah yeah, and it was all because of that misunderstanding. So again, going back to what I was saying before, there are moments of levity in the movie because otherwise I feel like it's like a, um, it's like a good song, right? Where you can't have it all be a downer. Not even every, you know, nothing that all Radiohead songs are downers. They're just a little bit of a darker tinge, but, but there's always a lightness to it. You gotta, you gotta balance. There's a counterplay there. There's, that's what makes a song so interesting. If a song's always in major keys and there's never like a, a minor somewhere in there, um, it, it just isn't as interesting a song. It'd be like having a hero in a movie who never has any kind of um, conflict, any kind of adversity, <laughs> right? He just kind of goes on through and everything just works out for him. Nothing is ever insurmountable. And that's not an interesting movie, but you look at something like a dark Knight movie, right? And you see hmm. the Joker and he just, he just, no matter how many, how many steps ahead Batman thinks he is, Heath Ledger's Joker is just 10 steps ahead. Uh, you've watched the other um, renditions of Dune, then, you know, it may not be as much of a surprise. But for me, I hadn't seen any of them. My dad was a huge fan. And I think he had he had one of the the versions. Um, I think it was the David Lynch 1984 version, but I never saw it myself. And uh, I think they those had a cult following. I don't know if they were super successful, but thanks for bringing up the, the book, though, because when I was doing a, a deep dive into this movie, just kind of looking at the background of it. I almost felt like the the history of the series, pretty interesting. It was almost as interesting as watching the movie to me, honestly. Mm. So Dune is a science fiction film ad, uh, adapted from the 1965 novel of the same name written by author Frank Herbert. So Dune 2021, uh, as you mentioned, is directed by Denis Villeneuve, which I had to google so many names in this movie and I'll, I'll get to the cast in a bit but man a lot of their names are not pronounced how you you would think so we'll mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a, a bit but um the original dune book is currently the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time and is often thought to be a major influence for star wars which i didn't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i was like okay that's that's definitely something that I, I had no idea. You know, it's there's a lot more lore in the books and there are several books as well. So I wonder if there is a lot of uh, similarities between the, the two series. Have you seen any any other Denis Villeneuve's uh, work? Um, I, I don't know if I've hmm. seen a lot of his stuff. Oh, so he's actually done a couple that I've heard of. So he's done Prisoners. I don't know if you've seen oh that one. Oh my gosh, that movie was intense. Yeah, I've yeah, seen I've seen plenty of his crazy. movies. He he's always he's always amazing. Look, okay, so he did Dune, Sicario. Uh, Blade Runner. He did Sicario and oh, Arrival. Of course, Blade Runner, Arrival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I've seen those two: Arrival, Blade Runner. I haven't seen Sicario, but Prisoners is pretty intense. French Canadian filmmaker, and uh, he's he's done some pretty big movies. I must say, Dune twenty twenty one is actually the third adaptation of the original novel. So. Uh, like I was saying before, David Lynch's 1984 film was the first movie. And uh, it actually, side note, stars a young Kyle MacLachlan of Twin Peaks fame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think he's Paul Atreides in that movie. Yeah, I think so too. And then uh, John Harrison's 2000 miniseries was the second adaption. So that it was a, a TV show version or like a made-for-TV movie. Seems more accurate to say. 
It's interesting though that people have been trying to to make like they didn't just stop. Like there are certain movies that people won't touch. You know what I mean? They're, oh no, it's been done. We're not going to try it again. Like look, the the Shining hasn't tried to. You know, it's a book. It, it's this was a, you know the movies. Actually, I will take that back. It was redone at least one more time for made for TV, and it was more like the novel. But aside from that, there are certain things that just don't nobody really touches. And yet this movie having just people just were like it's not quite where it should be you know what i mean right. to the point where people are still tr- have been trying to over and over again it's that important of a of a movie that they feel like it just hasn't quite they haven't hit it out of the park you know i i think back then with what people have seen and the tools that people had at that time i think each time they did a a rendition or adaption of dune I think people, a lot of people really appreciated it at that time because they didn't know any better. They didn't know what else could be done. What people have come up with was actually praised, but I don't, you know, it's easy to look back now and say, oh, that's some cheesy special effects that they used in, in the 1984 version. What makes in these movies so damn interesting are the philosophical struggles that they have that are so similar to the ones we have like that every every struggle on screen is a human struggle and so we can always relate to those things and i think it just takes removing ourselves from our expectations of what this future looks like and just allowing ourselves to what they say suspend disbelief right instead of just saying oh it wouldn't look like that at least give in a little bit now it's up to the filmmaker to actually get you to buy in right but the movie is just such an interesting one. It's like this kind of this reluctant hero. Um, it's not like he's like, it's not like he's like Thor, you know, where he's just like, mm-hmm. I am the, I am the God of lightning, whatever. Rah. You know, he just <laughs> wants that title. Whereas really Paul masculine is, and, and kind of in your face. Yeah. Almost obnoxious in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Cocky, you know, mm-hmm. whereas Paul's not, he's more just like, he's not like, it's not like he's shying away from it. Maybe reluctant isn't the right word, but he's certainly not vying for it. Yeah, exactly. Like when I was a kid, I'm like, I w- would have killed those Harkonnens a different way. Like that's what I was thinking watching the movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. No, it's, you know, that, and that's the thing too, is I feel like there was a lot of push for this movie. I don't know how they pitched this movie, but it seemed like everyone was pretty stoked to to just bring this universe back because if you look at the cast... Bro, they got some names in this one. Mm, they got mm. a, a lot of young upcoming actors and well-known great actors as well. You know, you got uh, so this is this is me googling yeah. the names because I'm like I don't know how to fucking pronounce this shit. So, um, Timothy Chalamet, as it's actually pronounced from from what he has stated in the past, Timothée Chalamet, because mm. you got you got throw that little French flair on there. Right, so right. Timothée Chalamet is uh, Paul Atreides in the film. And then you got Rebecca Ferguson, of course, Lady Jessica. Mm-hmm. She's not an Atreides, right? From my understanding, she, like she's not married. <laughs> she's a concubine. Remember, because he tells her, I, I should have married you. Mm, and she's okay. like, don't, don't think about it. Remember, like, he's laying on the bed and it's before the whole coup that sure, night. Sure. Mm-hmm. But she's Paul's mom, but not married to uh, Duke Leto. So Oscar Isaac plays Duke Leto, and yeah, I it's pronounced or it looks like Leto. I read that it's actually pronounced Leto. So whatever reason, Duke yeah. Leto Trades, and that that's Paul's dad. And then you got Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho, which I still think that's a kind of a stupid name. That doesn't sound like a realistic name to me at all. <laughs> 
Yeah, I wonder what Herbert's idea was behind that. Why, why Idaho? And State. what role does Duncan Idaho play in the film? Like, who who is he? He's he's like a friend, role model, protector, like bodyguard, right? I think he's their he's, best warrior. He's their best warrior, essentially. Yeah, he's he's their he best. He kind of plays warrior. a lot of roles, right? He's not necessarily. Um, I don't know if he's a leader. He's not the highest ranking leader, you know, um, which is interesting because, you know, evidently he trained Paul Chades for, for a long time. And since he was gone, um, you know, Josh Brolin's character comes in um, and, and trains him in, in, um, you know, is, is his proxy, so to speak, but he's a badass and he's the one who's in charge. Right. And you know what? I want to give a shout out to Jason Momoa because uh, a random fact is I was a huge fan of Baywatch growing up and <laughs> I think, I don't know if I was mentioning to you, but I, I just love that, that intro theme song. Some but... people stay in the dark. <laughs> da, do, 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 do. Yes, oh, right. yeah. I love that intro. But um, Jason Momoa was actually in Baywatch Hawaii. Like that was when I first saw him. A young, uh, you know, like just clean cut Jason Momoa. I think he was probably maybe late teens or maybe early 20s. Mm. And Baywatch had already ran its course, so I don't, I yeah. don't think it did too well. So I didn't see Jason Momoa for the longest time. It's, it's cool to see him pop back up with a totally different look. You know, like he has his his facial hair grown out. I think he he really started gaining a lot of attention once he was Hercules because he had like the long hair and like the facial hair, and he was more gruff and rugged looking. Uh, oh shit! So not Hercules. Uh, Conan. That's the one I was thinking of. Oh shit! He was Conan. Okay. So I, was, I had heard that they'd made another one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So not Hercules, but Conan the Barbarian, and he he popped up in that one. He has you know he had the the long mane that he rocks now, and I think ever since Conan and his just, signature that became yeah a staple. Like he has to have it now. I don't even think they, people will cast him unless he has the long hair now. Dude's a badass. So now we we get to Zendaya. As we were talking about earlier, Zendaya was prominent in the trailer, not so prominent in the actual film. But um, I also looked up how to say her name, and I feel like I want to say Zendaya, but she pronounces it Zendaya. Okay. So she plays Chaney, which <laughs> it looks like Chani, but it's pronounced Chaney. And uh, it's a mysterious, unknown Fremen who Paul dreams slash has visions about. Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, some fat fuck, as uh, <laughs> as uh, John kind of described him. Because John yes. was actually reading the, the, the actual novel. He was reading the first mm. novel. And mm -hmm. I was under the impression watching the film that the Baron was this weird kind of grotesque kind of monstrous figure. But John said, no, in the book, he's just some fat folk. That's what I put in my notes. Well, that's interesting then if in the book, he's just he's just a massive guy. Whereas in the movie, they did make him a more imposing figure to have that fucking whatever that is that he turns on that just goes like. And then he's just like. He just huge. starts floating, he's right? Just, but, and that's just so brilliant to have him. He's he's just a genius. The, the guy, I mean, obviously whoever made the movie is. But, but mm. I think that as a bad guy of course it's so smart it's just you are this huge imposing figure whether you really are that big or not the very mm -hmm. fact that you have the power to raise yourself above everybody else um say what you will the guy is heartless he'll do whatever the fuck he wants to get whatever he wants it's just you know the end justifies the means so he'll kill whoever and 
even though he's not exactly the one that is capable of doing harm to people he's the one he's the the brain behind it you know he's the one controlling uh and and strategizing his whole army and everything so you know that still makes him a pretty imposing figure yeah he's a he's a a quiet violent type it's almost like those are the the scarier ones not the not the loud, I don't know. I, f- I just feel like those quiet ones, just, you Over just don't the know top, what, yeah. what, what's going on inside their head, you know? Oh, he's he's very much the, the shot caller. Like, you feel his authority when he's in those scenes, you know? At the end of the day, they're just actors. So he had to fucking bring it, you know? He really did bring it. And he, it just seemed, wow, this guy is just, the, how do you beat this guy? When they bring up the fact that, you know, this is bullshit. Uh, what's his name? Um, The guy from... From the MCU, I can't think of his fucking name right now. Um, he's he's kind of like his the leader of his army uh, of the Harkonnens. Oh, Dave Batista, or there you go, yeah, Dave, Dave Batista. Batista. He's, yeah, speaking he's of like, imposing figures, freaking Dave right. Batista. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think. I mean, all these guys are just big, and yeah. it's it's still cool to see them all share that that same space. Yeah, um, on the screen. Do you think all all the Harkonnens kind of look like that? Like, are they all just big, muscular, bald headed? Beings. crossfit looking motherfuckers <laughs> uh as i rock yeah. my crossfit shirt <laughs> yeah the baron he just basically is like yeah it's not really what you th-. basically he says it's not really what you think it is you know like we're, we're giving this shit we're giving this all back to them after all these years we're gonna just give it back to them this is ridiculous we should fight he had a but, plan man but he had a plan because what he does what what dave batista's character didn't know was what mm. the baron knew which was the emperor is afraid and he even said that the, he's the baron says you know the emperor is afraid of this kid He's afraid yeah. he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna end his well, empire. Was it the kid or was it the family? I thought he just didn't like the family. He's afraid of the Atreides, right? He's afraid of the uh, he's afraid of the family. I think maybe I misspoke there. I don't know if he specifically names Paul, but uh, yeah, he's I feel like a lot of people write off Paul. Like they, he hasn't really done anything to catch anyone's eye yet. But you know, you you really get these these uh, the foreshadowing in the visions that like man, Paul's. Paul's going to play an important role at some point. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, not yet. It's, it's funny because it's kind of it's got like a little bit of um, old like this these old epic stories of say getting back to like biblical stuff. You know what I mean? Like um, King Herod trying to kill Jesus because he was afraid he'd heard that this one this this person was going to was going to overthrow him. At least that's how he interpreted it. He was going to be the new king, king of Jerusalem. Wow. So so there you have him. So you have basically the whole massacre of the the these innocent mm-hmm. children who were born at the same time that jesus was simply because king herod was afraid he didn't know he's like i don't know which one's going to be so let's just so kill just them kill all them any all. anyone that's been you know been born uh, he's this, trying to get ahead time. of it right he's trying to get ahead of it correct yeah get a handle on it um i i do want to make sure we don't forget to mention uh josh brolin as gurney halleck who plays like the advisor type role i guess you could say He's kind of the right hand man, almost like the hand of the king type of role. That's a that's a good distinction. Yeah, I think that's. And then um, how you were mentioning before, I think we started recording Javier Bardem as Stilgar, the leader of the Fremen troop. Bro, I can't believe I didn't even know that, was that him. movie. Oh, I knew. I dude, I just can't I went the believe. whole movie and I'm like, man, this is this is a great actor, and I'm like, that was Javier Bardem. Holy shit! Which is interesting. I didn't even draw this correlation, but fuck, No Country for Old Men. Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem. Right, yeah. Dude, what the fuck? This, That's so cool. This is the direct sequel to 
No country yeah. for old men. Yeah, it just it just boom. They just got launched into the future somehow, <laughs> to this dystopian future, and they're still at it, man. He still wants his money. He got his haircut a little bit different. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't have those bangs anymore. He's not a little bit different, but not handcuffs. really. Not that different. Yeah, he's 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 eased up a little bit. He's not choking fools out with handcuffs like he did. <laughs> um, of course, I can't go without saying that music was pretty fabulous. That music, though, honestly. That- who was that? Danny Elfman? Uh, I I believe it was Hans, Hans Zimmer. Zimmer. The Hans. Hans Zimmer. Yeah. The Hans. As, as uh, my, my buddy Gilson and I used to say, the Hans. Yeah, Dude. fucking legend though. Yeah, Hans Zimmer. Fuck. He did Interstellar, right? Interstellar, yeah. I think I, uh, I have to look that up. Dude, it was on yesterday. It was one of the it's, – it's just – it takes a lot out of me to watch that movie because it's, it's just like fucking – It's a lot going me. on. Dude, it's it's a lot going on. It's just such a world that it just grabs you, pulls you in. And I remember the first time I saw we can go we 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 should probably do a thing on Interstellar. <laughs> oh, we will, definitely. I think it's on uh, the list. So I won't I won't go too far into it. But yeah, so it was on and um and the music it, it just gets you, dude. Hans Zimmer. Yep, fucking Han dude, Hans Zimmer did Interstellar as well. So Honestly, I think the first time I started actually recognizing the Hans's work was probably on Paris of the Caribbean. I don't know if he did if he came up with the themes himself, but I think he was also he helped produce the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Um well the the scores for those. And then fuck, like if it if I had to actually think back, like the earliest work that I've heard him do was probably The Lion King. I didn't even realize that he he had a, a role in The Lion King, but yeah. Dope. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Dude, he's he's been in so many things. It's hard to keep track, honestly. Ah. Uh. Uh, yeah, to the listeners, um his he has this this penthouse loft. <laughs> In the city, and he's just, he <gasps> fell off of that, and he's just falling as he's recording. That's right, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> I'm just free falling. You know what I really appreciate about the score, though, was that it had a unique flavor to it, like it almost like a Middle Eastern element to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I definitely got those vibes. Even the visuals too, right? Like the Fremen. I thought, man, it. it I can't stand the desert. I just not. It's just I grew up out there for you know. I spent a couple of years out there when I was a kid, and I'm. I just don't don't. I don't like being surrounded by just a bunch of dirt. Mm. But that having been said, um, um, there's something so beautiful about that the starkness um, of their civilization and of just seeing those dunes. It was like I just you kind of want to do that that walk that special walk that they do to, to the, not the get caught by walk. the yeah the sand walk exactly. It's kind of like I want to. I wonder what that would be like to walk in sand like that. It was a cool cool aesthetic. I, I felt like just like all the the head wraps and everything and the scarves and kind of cloaks that they the the Fremen were wearing on top of their um hydration suit. So it right. was a mixture of kind of older styles as well as futuristic styles. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. it was it was a cool little mashup though, a little hybrid. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, I mean had they had their own aesthetic, their own flavor. You know, not to take away from from the, the other planet as well. I forgot what it was called. So the desert planet is called Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it's called Kaladin. That that like lush planet that they're on, which looks like Norway, <laughs> basically. Kaladin. But, um, that's where the Atreides are from. Atreides, yeah, they they originated from, and or at least what they're currently ruling over 
uh, mm-hmm. when the movie mm-hmm. starts. But man, I haven't seen visuals that beautiful recently since probably Blade Runner 2049. Which is ironic since, I mean, I don't know if it's ironic, but yeah, Denny's also did that movie. Yeah, Denny. exactly. I, I found uh, so many things intriguing about this movie, like the the shields, the spaceships, the body armor, like you're saying, the sandworm weapons of the ships. It, it was just a lot to to take in. And I, I really felt like they did a good job of introducing these newer elements. It's like, okay, now that you've seen this, how about this? You know, and all these sci-fi elements that I've never seen before, like, or at least not not depicted in this way like the shields we've we've seen shields plenty of times in sci-fi movies and tv shows but it was it was pretty cool the way that they did it in this one because it like changes colors depending on um what's trying to affect it right 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 and the shield itself is like against your skin it's imperceptible until you try to strike the person which is it just changes the the tactics that you have to use in order to prevail and um, it just it's cool to see Jason Momoa's character even just murking fools just left and right. And his technique is just flawless. It's fucking it's fucking dope. Jason Momoa's character, he could tell these interesting war stories. You know, remember, they're all sitting there and they're asking him what he thinks about the Fremen. And he tells them, oh, yeah, this is a sand displacer. And they're like, wow, you know, he just, he's just kind of gushing over these different <laughs> things that he's learned from the Fremen. And yeah. they're like, oh, it's kind of like you're like. You know, it sounds like you're you're in love with them, or it sounds like you really appreciate them. And he's like, "Yeah, I do." He you know? he found them really fascinating. Just their he's their way of life, their culture, Precisely. right? And he 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 was watching that documentary, essentially a documentary on their people. Right, right. I mean, J- J- just Jason Momoa. Remember, because uh, Paul Trades thinks I got to go with you because I think you're going to die. I had a I had a vision that you were going to die, and so I I want to go with you. He doesn't go with him, but it's during that time that when Jason Momoa is gone that he learns all these things because he was with the Fremen and he almost died mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. It just it's it feels so much like Frederick Russell Burnham's kind of story where it's like he he experienced near death near death and it was just he appreciated them again. Anybody who kind of overtakes people, you know, you have this you have this thought that they think that because they've overcome them somehow they're better than them, but mm-hmm. he doesn't come at them that way. He he right. comes open minded. Mm-hmm. And he says that they he's never met f- more fierce warriors than them. It's cool because uh, w- w- what I was talking about earlier was I was I thought you were talking about uh, Paul. But um, yeah, Duncan also he he was really fascinated and had a, a respect for the, the Fremen people. He I think he was originally sent by the Atreides, by House Atreides to kind of scope him out, you know, and, and get a feel for him. And then in, in doing so, I think in and understanding their way of life why the people are this way, I think he developed a deep respect for them. Kind of makes Again. you wonder because the the whole plot is House Atreides is ordered essentially by the council to go mine Arrakis because the Harkin, House Harkonnen just kind of vanished. Like they just up and left for whatever reason. So um, Arrakis was just up for the taking. It was just sitting duck. All that spice, that valuable spice that that element that is so valuable to everyone, you know, whoever controls that would be such a powerful house. And so I think they, the council was pitching it that way. Like, you know, if you get control of spice, there's no stopping you guys. But in reality, you know, it was all, it was a red herring. Yeah. Even worse than a red herring. It was like, it was just a trap. It's a trap. It was like, Hey, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, no, it, it basically, they were entirely set up. The whole point of even having them go there was simply to kill them. That's all. Hey, look, these guys will all be in one place at the same time. You know, big picture here. I mean, what Dave Batista's character didn't get was that 
this is how we trounce them. This it'd be better to fight them in this way when they when their guard is down, when they're unfamiliar right. with the territory here, versus going to their home planet on the emperor's behalf to merc them there. And now we've got a battle that may we may not win, you know, right. or at least we'll take heavy losses with for sure. This is more definitive. Less this is more risk. definitive. Just boom, we'll smash them. We'll smash them, and uh, you know they pay that doctor to to make it easy. Um, and they got him where it hurts too, because you can't blame him. You know he thinks his wife is going to die, so he's like, oh, I got to do whatever I can to save her. Um, and what's interesting though is looking back on that whole situation when he says, "Look, but what I'll do is I'll put, I'll implant this tooth in in your in your mouth that will give you the ability to kill anybody else in the room." So was that was that a, a, almost a, a way of just I'm kind of doing you solid here because I, I do have respect for you, but it's just unfortunate that. I'm being forced to betray you guys because I don't want to. I, I actually really like you, but you know, it is what it is. So here's that little poison capsule that you can hide in your mouth and right. you know, it'll, it'll also kill everyone else around you. So you can use it as a weapon. Right. Because I don't think that he had a, I think he, you know, he was just in a tight spot and I think that he just wanted to, you know, give, give Oscar Isaac's character as well, uh, the ability to kill this very terrible person because he knew, look, Oscar Isaac's guy, I mean, what, what's his name again? <laughs> Duke, Duke Leto. Leto, Leto, Duke Leto. He wanted to give Duke Leto a, um, he, he, I mean, he realized this guy's a good person. Whereas, uh, the Baron is, is just like fucking power hungry. And everyone had known for quite some time that the Harkonnen were just ravaging the, the land and, mm. um, and profiting from it just exponentially. Yep. So it's not like they're good people, um, compared to the Atre house of Atreides. So yeah, of course, I think he was just trying to I, I, the way I was going to say, what I was going to say is, who knows if Duke Leto would ever have had the opportunity to ever get that close to uh, the Baron, had it not mm. been for the fact that he was just like completely obliterated over overnight, you know, yeah, and then that's true. was just laying there weak. And, and so the assumption on, on they the Baron's him. part, you're right, precisely underestimate him. He looks weak, all that shit. Um, I did want to dive a little bit deeper into Lady Jessica. Duke Leto's uh, sad piece um, because there's a lot to unpack here. A lot more than I originally expected because I thought she was fell in love. <laughs> I mean, I fell you know, love. how can you not? There's, there's a, a pretty deep lore that goes into her people. So do you remember what her people were called? I don't. I don't. They're, they're called the Benny Jesuit. I was like, what the hell is that? Cause they mm. mention it kind of, they kind of gloss over in the movie. Um, so the Benny Jesuit, are an exclusive sisterhood, which I guess could also mm -hmm. be considered a religion or political force, whose members train their bodies and minds through the years of physical, mental, yeah, mental conditioning to obtain abilities that seem magical to outsiders. Um, I think one of the like the high ranking Benny Jesuits was that that creepy kind of like witch lady. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Of course. Or like you don't really like see what she she really looks like, but. Um, she, I guess she was a reverend mother of the Benny Jesuit. I think what I think is interesting about this, the sisterhood is that in, in other religions, it seems like they often stigmatize sex and like breeding and all that stuff. But the, the Benny Jesuit, it seems like they, they seem to embrace it. They kind of use it as a tool with ulterior motives. Their like purpose in life is to essentially try to breed and give birth to the perfect male that naturally embodies all these supernatural and like clairvoyant abilities necessary to guide humanity to a better future. 
And that's what that whole box test thing was, was to like, mm-hmm, does he mm-hmm. does he have any signs of this? Because Lady Jessica's role was she was supposed to have a daughter and that daughter was going to give birth to this perfect male. But instead, Lady Jessica had a son and Jessica was convinced that like, hey, I think Paul might be this this like messiah that we're looking for. He might mm-hmm. be because he he does get like some visions like he he gets like little hints and uh you know, he's, he's showing signs of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's the whole reason why she the Reverend Mother goes out there and she she does that box test. And I think a lot of people kind of write off Paul. Like a lot of people in the movie are like, no, nah, this this definitely he's there's no fucking way this guy's the Messiah. He's just like some random boy, you know, and well, he's unassuming because he is yeah. young. And because he's slender uh, in build, he's a little pale. He's he doesn't he doesn't look like a Jason Momoa. He doesn't he doesn't even look like his own dad. You know, in the terms of like mm. how built he is. You know, and doesn't have like the the thick facial hair. He doesn't have the the signs right. of what would be term what would be normally thought of as this masculinity that you would think would be in a ruler. Um, but he is young yet, so who knows what's to come in that sense. But yeah, they they underestimate him as well. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because it's like there's there's almost this um, disbelief or this bitterness even with the Bene Gesserit where you know she puts him to the test right away and and, and you know it seems like it, it's a it's a surprise to Lady what's her name Lady Jessica did you say or so, Jessica yeah. or Jessica right I think she just is like oh this is all happening so fast but um, for him to be tested but it's almost like hey let's just separate the wheat from the chaff right away you gave birth to a boy um, and we are you're you're only supposed to you know. And you started teaching him our ways, you know, he's, this is supposed to be only for women. You don't teach the, a young man this way unless he is the one, you know? Right. And so exactly. then she's like, well, let's just test him. And if he dies, then, then it's so be it, you know? But did you die? But did you die? So obviously he didn't. Um, did you think just, that box test actually was deadly or was it just painful? Painful, painful, but he would have died if he'd pulled his hand out. Right. Cause she had that, she had that needle oh, to his neck, right. which was like, so she, she would have killed him. Yeah, Regardless. it wouldn't have taken okay. anything. It was just right there by his neck. It was like about to press okay. his neck. And so he just had gotcha. to stand there and take it. So that was interesting. But what I was going to say is it's so it's to me, this movie is is so much more interesting uh, than most other sci-fi films out there where they they tend to lean heavily on technology. Um, there's a, a, obviously a lot of technology involved in this movie, but there's an aspect, again, getting into the whole philosophy of, of um, the movie, there's a, just of life in general. There's an aspect mm-hmm. of, of life, there's mystery that we s- still don't understand that science can't explain. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that, that, that the philosophers of old um, spoke of metaphysics and, and the prefix meta meaning beyond physics, beyond what in the physical world, you know. And so they get into this mysticism. Uh, the whole Bene Gesserit is this, this conduit. They're, they're the channel through which all that mystery that we experience in life now is expressed in, in this very powerful group of, of, of women who are basically like nuns in some sense. Um, and, uh, and they're kind of like pulling the strings. You know, they're, they're so in control that they're like cha- – they, they are the ones who shift, you know, leadership – um, they're the ones pull, again, they're, they're, if these, if the emperor thought he was powerful, it's only because they allowed him to think that, um, they <laughs> kind of are in they're they're, they're like, uh, the, uh, Lord Varys, right? Right. Yeah. They're like the spider. They're the ones pulling the strings. 
like you don't realize that he's being manipulative that's how good he is you know and that's that's kind of how they are i was even reading up on the fact that they they can kind of manipulate and like brainwash people as well well sure because i mean they use the voice right even the voice can i mean i don't don't know if there's more subtle ways but the voice is just like so powerful um and of course he has these these premonitions which the um the the spice only taps into and helps him to experience which again is very very interesting very interesting because Um, I'm like, I want to read this book now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've wanted to, but it's been low on my on my list. I've got so many others that I've been wanting to read, but this might just like bump it up even more. Paul Atreides' character, because he is so powerful, mean, he, he, he's very powerful and not everybody, you don't see anybody else experiencing the things that he's seeing. Um, he's just more sensitive to it. It's given you a sense of how powerful he might become. Like he's just he's just kind of like barely dipping his toes into it, and I almost feel like that that spice is kind of accelerating it in a way. Like he seems to right. be more sensitive to it than other people around him. In a way, it's like it it lowers those in, in any kind of in anything that would prevent him from getting there, from disbelief. Even there's you know there's talk that. Um, with like, for instance, with psychedelics, they talk about this ego death where it removes the ego and then you're able to connect other parts of your brain or whatever. It turns off the default mode. In other words, the, the mm-hmm. ego is another way of default mode and ego are synonymous. So in a way, it's almost like by him experiencing this, these, the spice by him being exposed to it, it's like, it turns off that default mode of I'm present and goes into this whole other experience of, well, opening himself up. He becomes this right. channel. And he's able to see the future somehow, kind right? of, kind of, right? Because because yeah. there's a mystery to that. It's not. Um, it's not always definitive. That's what we learn. And he said that too, right? He's like, oh, my dreams aren't always exact, right? He says something like right. that, even though at the time he was lying about that to his mom. He was saying something else, but but what he said was true because you find that out later when he thought that he was going to be best friends. He already saw this premonition of, oh, this guy that that I'm going to fight, we're going to be good friends and he's going to teach me a lot. You end up seeing him fucking kill him because <laughs> yeah. he had to because the guy wouldn't just wouldn't accept a defeat. That's what I, I'm wondering about it. That's what I, f- I find so interesting about the spice is like, how does it work exactly? It has, it seems to have psychedelic effects on humans and it's like, how is it used to achieve interstellar space travel? You know, like I, I want to know right. how exactly it's used. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, it's, it's like how you're saying um, there are these, these elements in, in sci-fi where it's, you don't really quite understand how, how these things work. Like maybe it's, it's just kind of beyond our, our understanding at the moment, but you know, maybe somewhere down the line, it, it might make more sense, but it just didn't, as it is right now, I'm like, I'm totally oblivious as to how this spice, you know, allow you to be able to travel through space in a more efficient manner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've thought the same thing too. That that question's definitely been burning in the back of my brain. I only hope that that their answers are um, meet or satisfy. I should say. I hope that their answers satisfy the questions that we have. Yeah, apparently, actual the actual name of the spice substance is called melange. Melange. Did they mention that in the movie? I don't think they did. At least I don't remember. Melange. Melange. Maybe they'll save that until the next movie because we're going to spend more time with the Fremen. For foreigners, it's just considered, I think, overall, just spice. I think that's what it's referred to. 
And, you know, I was wondering if there, if there are other planets that have this, but I think I read somewhere that it's exclusively found on Arrakis. Being so rare and, and such a valuable substance and being so heavily mined by the Harkonnen before House Atreides shows up, I wonder why it doesn't run out so quickly. Like it, it's almost like reproducing itself as it's being mined. It's like producing more to accommodate and I wonder if it has something to do with those worms. Like, I don't know. Do you think it's the mm. worms are what create the spice in some way? That's a, that's a big question. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. It does seem to regenerate very quickly. And while they have these big ass tanks that just kind of soak up all that shit. Yeah, they still they still don't, don't seem to be able to use it all up. So, yeah, I don't know. Um I, I don't know how it's regenerated. Yeah, maybe the worms do. I'm still, I am curious like you. Oh, but the other thing too is what we do know as well from the movie, the, uh, that woman, she, she, she rescues them. Um, she tried not to get involved, but she ends up rescuing, uh, Jessica and Paul hmm. and, uh, brings them into this facility. Right. And, uh, when she brings them in there, she talks about, she shows them different plants and stuff. And she's like, an ecologist or whatever she's a scientist and she was brought there she's the judge of change right the the imperial planetologist planetologist right and she's the one who actually you know helps him with his suit or whatever and she goes huh how'd you know how to do this and he goes oh i just it just seemed like the right thing to do and she's like oh and then she says that phrase basically like he's the messiah he's the chosen one under her breath in the, in the fremen language but, so her name is Dr. Liet Kynes. Liet Kynes, R.I.P. But she she um she was brought there initially because she was they 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 believed that they could find a way to make plants live there finally. But what ended up happening was her research got stopped because they realized that in order for that to happen, which they found they could do, it would eradicate spice. So then they had to give up all all hope of that. Yeah, that is that's pretty interesting because they found they found a use for the spice. I think originally they thought it was just a desert sand planet, which in most cases is pretty uninhabitable, and mm-hmm. you can't really do much with it, right? But right. they found out that there's it's not just sand. There's there's this extra substance in the sand that's like mixed in with it that they can mine, and it happens to be extremely valuable. What was her role in the movie? Because she was being a plant planetologist. She had this vast knowledge of the planet. and But she also worked for the council, right? Like she was the judge of the change. So I'm assuming that, that role yeah. was given to her by the council. So was she working for them or was she independent? You know, I wasn't. And she, she also seemed like she was with the Fremen as well. Or that's why they hired her because they wanted someone local to the planet. Right. Yeah. She was, um, she wasn't born there, but she was kind of like Jason Momoa's character enamored of the, of the culture and even married. Uh, she went native, right. As they would say in psychology, mm-hmm. she went native. She ended up marrying a Fremen and everything, falling in love and all that. But from what I understand, she was sent there. She's basically like a liaison for them. So she knew the whole area well, but she's so well-traveled, well-educated as well that she could she could communicate to them better than most, right? She wasn't just okay. a Fremen who was who and was, she was trusted by them. Right, precisely. She was she was trusted by both parties, whereas the Fremen might be less likely, in fact would be less likely to want to talk to them. She was more uh, open to to sharing some of their information about how things work there and um could translate. She she knew other languages. In fact, I mean, I don't know if everybody in the Fremen knew, knew, knows that tongue. I don't know what tongue they speak. If if it would be considered English, and 
but but no so she she is that liaison she is uh, explains all this shit to them and uh and has a vast knowledge of the planet and again even better than the fremen because who knows if the fremen even knew that there was a plan to create i think you're right because um she like how you're saying she's well educated so i think she was able to maybe study a little bit deeper into the way things work on this planet whereas like the fremen mm-hmm. are like well we understand how to survive and what to avoid but we don't mm-hmm. really we didn't really look too far into it precisely she has something to compare it to she's been elsewhere so she knows so she can see kind of this whole she gets the concepts. She gets an idea. Oh, that's what these people do to survive. They do and this. how it differs from the other planets, right? Precisely, precisely. Whereas they only know the one way. They have nothing to compare it to because they've spent their lives under oppression. All they know is assholes come to their planet and ravage it of its resource, which they use for, you know, um, spiritual ceremonies, mm-hmm. and which they find is precious. And so these people are basically just ravaging their 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 own planet. All that's all they know. We're fighting constantly. Man, I was I wasn't sure what this whole judge of the change title was. So I was I was looking a little bit deeper into it before we start recording. And man, there's this there's a lot to unpack with uh, Dr. Liet Kynes as well. So buckle oh. up. So <laughs> um, the judge of the change, I guess uh, their role is they're charged with presiding over the change of planetary matters whose authority could only be challenged before the high council. So basically if anything major is done to Arrakis, it has to go through her first. And, uh, lit kinds, um, it seemed like, like how we're, we're mentioned before, you know, she had that close relationship with the Fremen almost acting like their protector in some ways, right? Like she said, it, mm. it's like she had that inside knowledge and she was, she was going to manipulate and kind of, take certain actions that are going to protect the Fremen and Arrakis. Like she right. had this, uh, this deep respect for the planet. Loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And in, and even like the, the dangers of the planet, like the sandworms, like it seemed like she was, she had this deep respect for them as well. And, and even the sandworms, like I'm like, man, the, such a, a, an interesting factor in this planet, you know, and trying to survive is like, you got these fucking worms that are just like willing to, to kill you at any moment. Some, right. Because at the very end you see the Fremen riding. Yeah, riding exactly. Them. Like they, so. they, it's, it's like the the fremen and the worms have this this like mutual understanding with each other right here's an interesting fact a fun fact f- for uh, Leah Kynes. the character in the book was male and all of the live action adaptions Leah Kynes was male and <laughs> so for for whatever reason for this adaption, they decided to to make Leah Kynes female, and this the reason why I bring this up is because Doctor Leah Kynes, <laughs> the character, was Cheney's father in the story. So I'm not sure how that's going to play into the story now. I think that kind of throws a wrench into some of the plans. It's going to do you think they're going to try to just flip it and say that Leah was Cheney's mother instead of father? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I think they're going to do. There, there's this whole generation of the kinds living on this planet. So I, I believe Leah Kynes got the role that she has now from having it passed down from her father. So I think it passes down with the males. So I don't know if that's if they just kind of retcon that and just said it, it was passed down to the daughter instead of the son. 
Mm, okay. Yeah, we'll see. I, I don't. I, I think it worked. Um, but we'll see how they tie it all together. And I wonder if that's going to be a yeah. spoiler in for for the next half of the movie. Right, the right. next half of the series is like to know. that person. Yeah, that you were talking to was my my parent. Yeah, my mom. I don't know. That's really cool. But going back to the sandworms, like how you're saying, there's uh, they were able to ride them. Um, I remember seeing that that shot of Leia Kynes where she she busts out the hooks, right? Right. Yeah. Right after I think they're are they trying to flee from the Harkonnens? Or uh-huh. yeah, yeah, they like remember bust she in. goes one way and they go the other. She they run down that tunnel. There's like a fork in that tunnel, and because they're they're uh, trying to flee to uh, their transportation, which was that like. Oh, shout out to that the bug aircraft too, because that thing is fucking it's awesome. Cool with the looking, fluttering wings. A, yeah, like a helicopter. It's a, it's like a hummingbird, but I I think those are called ornithopters. Orna? <laughs> I don't know if they are, I don't know if they actually mentioned that in the the movie, but in the the lore, they're called ornithopters. That's t- that's tweet. I like that. <laughs> and they don't seem to be the it. most practical design, but they make for a unique idea nonetheless. But yeah, like how you're saying, they they were running towards the that the airship, and then um, she she runs her different direction, and Leah she busts out the hooks, and I remember thinking at that moment, I was like, "Is this girl about to try to ride one of these damn worms?" And then she gets killed. So, right. <laughs> and you know, my my question was answered towards the end of the film when they actually do show a shot. But I was like, I was just thinking like this bitch is going to try to ride this worm right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's no, that was dope. And it's just like seeing it coming, you know, knowing, you know, she's got that, that thumper thing going on and it's just like, Oh man, this is about to go down. I don't know how it's going to work out, but she seems confident. It just seems badass. She seems, uh, she seems badass when she's just standing there, hooks out, ready to go. You know what those, those worms kind of remind me of? They remind me of those Sarlacc pits in star Wars. Except yeah, more can, mobile and dangerous. Yeah, more mobile. Yeah, for sure. You could tell Star Wars kind of usurped a little bit of that. Just like, yeah, we'll toss that in there too for fun. Because they're just stationary, um, right? Those Sarlacc pits. Yeah, they just they just they're just there. And you just drop somebody down there. Bye. But these things are a lot tougher to avoid. Right. You know what's interesting is uh, in Beetlejuice. Do you remember in Beetlejuice they have worms? They have worms in the desert that do the same thing yeah yeah it's it's such an interesting concept right right and i wonder if that idea of the sandworm originated in the dune series and then other works just kind of adopted that interesting to think about that because i think you know when i think of the ocean kind of freaks me out to think how many things we don't know are under there because there's a lot we don't know still Mm -hmm. but like of the things that we know there are some fucking massive sharks and shit you know (laughs) so just just the thought that they're just kind of lurking beneath just kind of doing you know like just weaving back and forth just biding their time waiting Mm -hmm. these sea monsters the kraken right this giant squid you know things like that just existing under there so to consider that over uh, that's that is under the surface of the ocean you'd you'd think on solid land you're good but then no 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 you're in you're in an ocean of sand and there are beings in there that are highly mobile and mm. uh, will fucking eat you. <laughs> we'll just like inhale you. You'll just be. And those teeth, right? Those swords that, that, that um, like the sword that uh, Cheney gave to 
Paul mm-hmm. was of a tooth, right? It was of one of their teeth. Oh, is that it's what that was? Sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. She said, this is from the, the ancient, and she said the name. I forget which one, but it's, I don't know if it's like the oldest worm there. But is that when he does his says, little yeah. like – yeah that's when he's ready yeah he's got his little (laughs) basically his little tooth saber but that's what it is it's it's one of their teeth and remember when she falls Mm -hmm. in as we've seen a couple times whenever like that massive factory whatever those things are uh Mm -hmm. fell into its mouth uh you saw all these teeth right you saw just thousands of teeth in there and that that sword is made of one of those teeth do you think you can survive like would it be possible to survive being swallowed by one of those sandworms I wonder if there's like a, a technique that you can do to to be able to just ride it out. But at the, also at the same time, yeah. since the worms don't have lips, they can't close their mouth. So they're constantly when they're burrowing, I'm picturing them just ingesting the spice and the sand, you know. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that that's their body ejecting that maybe out the back end is like how they travel underground. Interesting. So then what happens to the people that are interesting i don't i don't know I, like it I doesn't seem like it would you would have enough time to be digested if that's even I what they do mouths, i thought i thought their mouths could like cinch up to could a they? point but i could be wrong i don't remember i don't remember i don't they just look like an that. asshole huh a just spiky like a asshole. Up asshole yeah <laughs> fucking puck it up asshole pow just open right up just in your face right you're <laughs> mm. mine gotcha bitch so what'd you think of when the Harkonnens finally catch the House of Atreides off guard and just slaughter them? Like, what'd you think of that spectacle? Because it, it conveniently happens at night, you know, and they're all sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so you get to see all these fantastic explosions and stuff. Right, and right. Just it was those drills. Right. Because the the way that the shields work, from my understanding, is that if it gets hit with a high velocity object, I think it blocks it. But if it, mm-hmm. it slows down, it's slow, then it's able yeah. to like pierce it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also with their personal shields, but it seems like their ship shields also act the same way. That's why when they're shooting those rockets down, they slow down to like yeah. drill through the, the shield and then they, they speed back up and spread out. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah, that was quite a spectacle. I, you know, you just felt, it really it really makes you feel a sense of hopelessness it's just man they got us at every corner the very thing you've got these big big ass ships that are supposed to protect us but oh look they're just being demolished before anybody could even get inside to to fire back at least a few rounds right so you're like what what just uh, this overwhelming sense of hopelessness and you're just kind of like feeling bad because these are seemingly good people i mean we don't know them all that well but they they seem to have these uh principles that they live their life by the, the certain principles that um are more just i'm I mean, the same could be said for the harkin and they have they have their own principles that they live by too but but there seem to be um there seems to be a, sen- a certain sense of empathy that the uh, house of Trades has and so to see them just be completely eradicated the way they were when they were just po- they were on the they were on the um the precipice of this great undertaking this great new chapter in the in the lives of the atreides and the history of the house atreides you know to be given to be handed this um this position and of this control. is where josh brolin's character may or may not have been killed right and this, this is the point during this skirmish during this you know there wasn't much of a fight it was pretty, massacre uh, yeah, pretty yeah massacre that's it right it was massacre so yeah 
And what was curious too was that they they do have projectile weapons, they have guns and stuff, but they use swords mainly like katanas when they fight. Try swords. Yeah, exactly. They have katana. Um, it's interesting that they would choose that weapon, right? Yeah. Close combat. Suddenly, it's just like fuck your guns. We're gonna we're gonna get in real tight. We're but it's it's a, an understanding from both sides, so they're both fighting with katanas instead of like. I see a bunch of guys running at me with with swords and I'm like, I'm just going to mow them down. You know, you just hop on a, like a turret or something and just mow them down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because they do use big guns, right? They launch just like, boom, 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 boom. Like they train them up in the skies. Like, so they do do those. They do use big ass guns Mainly for there, anti-air right? though, it seems like, but not so right. much close quarter. But, not, but all of a sudden, right. But, but to go from that, knowing that they could, they, you're right. I think it's interesting that instead they go, no, we're about to, and we'll have to mess you up close, up close and personal. I got to give a shout out to that goopy healing tar bath because what the fuck was that? <laughs> that thing was dope. They just keep pouring more of that oil or whatever the fuck that was. Yeah, in there. What, what the fuck was that? Because that was after the Baron almost gets killed by that that uh, um, poison capsule by Duke right. mm-hmm. And so he like flees up into the ceiling or what. Like, does yeah. he have a device that he floats with, or is, is it like it. telekinetic? Like, no, no, no. It's like, he's like has that thing. He just like pushes those buttons on his arm. Oh, and it's okay. Like, and he's just like, as soon as it makes that sound, all of a sudden he's just like, like hovering yeah. over people. Like, remember he does that, and then he like hovers over that big long ass dinner table. Just yeah, because he's wearing this long mumu type thing, right? And so it looks like oh, he's yeah. super tall because it's like still extending to the ground, even though he's floating up. Right, exactly. Again, just du- just fucking dope, <laughs> just brilliant. And <laughs> the Stellan, visuals, yeah. Stellan kills it. He's I've seen him in so many other movies, and you know he's Alexander Skarsgård's dad and Bill Skarsgård's dad as well. So Bill Skarsgård being, of course, it. Yeah, the clown. It in and the most I actually movie. know him from um, being the father of the guy that plays Eric Northman in the True Blood series. Right, right. Alexander Skarsgård, um, who was also you know Tarzan in the more recent remake i say recent but that's maybe like 10 years ago (laughs) maybe longer but yeah he's in that and he's in like big little lies and um yeah he's he's dope he's a good actor they're all good actors but stellan i just man never better i thought i thought he was just dope and uh, the reason why i want to bring up that that whole battle scene that that massacre because Mm. not only was it a, a pretty devastating scene for house of trades but that's also where Jessica and Paul are captured and they're being transported out into the middle of the desert to be executed. And then how do they escape the situation? Right, right. They, uh, they tap into, uh, the force. <laughs> no, they use, uh, they use the voice, the voice, the Benny Gesserit skill called the voice. Right. And you know, you know, I had to fucking look this shit up too because I was curious about it. I was like, what the fuck is the voice? Yeah. So yeah. it's described as a means to control others merely by selecting tone shadings of the voice. So by modulating the subtleties of her voice, a Bene Gesserit can issue commands on a subconscious level, compelling obedience in others that cannot resist, that they cannot resist, whether they are consciously aware of the attempt or not. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I thought this was such a fucking cool concept in the movie. I think so too. I don't yeah. think I've seen this any or anything like this in uh, any other sci-fi movie. 
Yeah, neither do I. It's a, uh, it's, it's again, it's brilliant. Um, using tones, there's such a mystery behind tones. Exactly, Music, just even. sound, right? Like they're just sound. using this like frequency to to subconsciously control someone. Whereas I feel like if you look at um, manipulating someone or like brainwashing someone um, or mind controlling, um, in some fashion, I feel like it's, it seems to be more telekinetic in a way, or like some sort of like psychic ability, but this seems to have a, a science to it, you know, that makes it seem plausible. Right. Right. You know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I don't even know what the term, the appropriate term is, but I'm definitely like a Greek at heart. So, um, what I was going to mention is, you know, sound has always been important. Music is, is, is extremely important. Um, just to any human, I mean, like to, to, to meet somebody who doesn't like any type of music is rare. If not, if it's just a lie, I don't know. an out and out lie, but there are certain tones that we like hearing and, um, and appreciate, I mean, hell, we're talking about Hans Zimmer's music for fuck's sake. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just brilliant, but, um, there, were certain modes so in 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 um in greek or grecian music there were certain modes so like how we have different key signatures in in our western music you know c major a minor uh the you know g g sharp major something like that right um those are western types and that's what we would write in the key signature that's how we would know how to perform the song and we would then know what notes were included or excluded from the piece right well in ancient greece they had modes and those modes are still used today in fact actually jazz uses certain modes as well but um and and even radiohead uses some i'm a big radiohead fan if you didn't know uh but radiohead uses certain modes lydian and there's all these really cool names mixolydian and stuff like that but um there were certain modes that were that were considered um outlawed they were they were forbidden from being used because because certain these certain modes might incite riots they were so powerful people hearing it would then act right so even as far back as then music was seen as something that was mysteriously powerful and that needed to be channeled properly but you know used by the right person these tones like the jet Bene Gesserit can use these certain tones to manipulate people into doing certain things tapping into the psyche in a way that mm-hmm. you cannot resist unless you're covering your ears right yeah i wonder if there is a technique to it because mm-hmm. like how you're, you're saying the s- sounds and, and tones is is already a mystery as it is and i feel like oftentimes that's that's a a sense that's overlooked you know like if you're if you're the captor and someone's making some strange sound or tone you're not gonna say you're not gonna immediately think they're trying to use this to free themselves you're like the fuck are you doing shut your ass up you know like it, i feel like it's it's overlooked and underestimated mm-hmm. and that's why i feel like that that would make it the perfect method to to use and exploit because it's something that is unsuspecting it's unsuspecting it's it's again it's just it's a it's a it's a brand that's even higher it's suggestive right it's it's suggestive where you know we talked about how it influenced star wars where you have it being more i mean it's it's a command so it's less suggestive but it's more like again it's more subtle whereas with with star wars you have the force right which is a physical which is like i will this thing to move it's telekinetic so it's very visually oriented and it's like 
through the mind, this thing happens. Well, through the mind, this voice is channeled too. So you could say that, but the voice is, it's just a different way to control a situation versus the force. Right? Yeah. The, the beauty of the skill is that it, it, it makes it difficult for it to pick up on, you know, and by the time you start recognizing what, what's happening, it's too late. And for me, that kind of begs the question, like how often do you think the Benny Jesuits use this technique uh-huh. for their own gain? Precisely. Precisely. I wonder how many people really know that this power even exists because they are such a secret society anyway. Um, Do you think Jessica used this on Duke Leto at any point, you know, to like um, get his attention and and, um, you know, like plant these seeds like, yeah, you, you want to pursue this. Huh. You know, hard to say, but I think that she truly loved him. And I think um, I I just don't know that if I could see her manipulating him into wanting to even be with her because who wants to be with somebody that doesn't want to be with you right and so to manipulate somebody even to wanting to be with you i think would be would would still feel awful deep inside because even if you tricked them with love potion number nine they'd still they at the end of the day if it wore, once it wore off they'd be like what the fuck am i doing with you right you you, you want to be loved you don't want to force love so, so I don't know. I, I think that she was, she's a very loving person. Yeah. She's powerful when she uses it against people that she knows she needs to fucking kill or mm-hmm. that are going against her and stuff. But, um, I have a feeling that the Benny Gesserit, the, the way that they've been able to survive for, I'm assuming, um, centuries, maybe even millennia, who knows, but mm-hmm. like they this, the sisterhood has been able to survive because I feel like they are able to manipulate. I think they're able to, to get into positions of power so that way they can either, um, influence decisions or just straight up like brainwash them, you know, into doing what they want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their ultimate life mission is to track down certain qualities and characteristics so that way they can, I, and I think once they identify that, they infiltrate, they get close to the to these targeted people that have these certain traits, and then they work on breeding in specific traits in order to give birth to the one, essentially, you know? And I feel like in a way, it's kind of predatory, <laughs> but, it, but in a slow burn kind of method, you know, a low-key, un, undetected kind of way that makes them seem innocuous. Right. And... I think the obvious answer is that they do use the skill for their personal gain, but maybe not so much personal, but for the the benefit of the overall sisterhood, right? Because it seems like no matter where where you are, where you're positioned, who you're married to or not married to, you're you're always the most loyal to the Benny Jesuit above all else. You might be like she Jessica might be loyal to House Atreides, but I feel like her sisterhood is number one priority. Right. Look, I mean, they had this, right. They, they had this private meeting, <laughs> like her loyalties run deep with the Bene Gesserit. Like she's still very much one of them. And um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that that definitely um, is true. If any of them are, if all of them are anything like her, then, then their loyalties are still with the Bene Gesserit, no matter who's ruling. Cause ultimately, if you think about it, it doesn't really matter who's ruling um, because it's always the Bene Gesserit who are putting in place the people that they want to rule. Mm-hmm. They're basically the chess players and all these other people are just uh, p- chess pieces on the board. It's essentially like they're the Bene Gesserit are playing this game uh-huh. that like no one else even realizes is going on. That's where those ulterior motives come in. Right, right. But I was going to ask you, you know, so they, they say that they're trying to bring about this Messiah. Do you think anyone 
one person could rule the galaxy. Them all. Right. Well, what do you think though? Do you think do you think just as a human being, do you think any one person could rule everyone? I you know, if it was just a, a human, a flawed human like like most of us, then I feel like it would it would be very difficult. What they're describing as this this Messiah is that they they're able to nothing surprises them. They're essentially brand. Like they they see so far in the future and they know what events are going to happen that nothing is ever going to be a surprise and that they they know what actions to take to be able to produce these outcomes and and benefit I think uh, humanity overall in some way, which is kind of strange because this this person is supposed to be born with all these sp- supernatural and clairvoyant abilities. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they would even at that point, do they even have any humanity in them? They're so far above the rest of us and nothing's a surprise. I think that's a good question, right? It, it becomes a question of how human are they? Again, because what are we asking really is um, how much can they empathize with us at any point at, that, at a certain point? Are they, do they become callous to human desires, human needs? And, and will they even accept that role that they're they're this messiah and they're they're going to lead us to to prominence but what if they decide like i don't want to do that like i want to do something else fuck mm-hmm. you guys i don't know that's a good question i think once you've ascended to that role it's kind of like you just have to follow through on it it's almost like it becomes that duty but also i wonder if it's not that it also becomes so much more interesting that that to go back to a life that's simpler would be um, boorish, you know, would, would just like, would not be as interesting once you've ascended. Yeah. I don't want to stay on that, that topic too long. Cause there, we still have the rest of the, the end of the movie to, to cover, but I did mm. want to mention Duncan Idaho goes out like a G protecting house Atreides. So shout out to him. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to him. That was a dope scene. You know, sacrificing himself, showing his, uh, his selflessness, loyalty to house atreides besides i mean i don't think any of us were surprised that that was probably going to be the fate of his character he was a warrior through and through and that was his his purpose was to protect paul and jessica and you know that's what he did he bought them time enough time for them to escape Mm -hmm. on the (laughs) the ornithopter on that ornithopter right and the way i also look at it too is when you kill off characters like that you're only making room for new characters to share that space because there's only so much attention that you can give sometimes to a character to, to different characters and if you start mm-hmm. introducing new ones and you still have the older ones there it's almost like they become obsolete anyway so it's like do you want to go out in like a like a little fizzle or do you want to go out with like a fucking blaze of glory right because either you way always you want to go out with the blaze of glory right? right you're right exactly so not everyone gets that like josh brolin you know he just fucking disappears for the rest of the movie so you don't know what the hell happens to him you just right. can't forget and- about him and we don't even know who's going to be in this next iteration of the movie, who's going to be in this sequel. And who knows how many sequels there will be. Who knows? There may be a third for all we know. So, Oh, you think so? Um, yeah. I was under be. the impression that it was just going to be a, a two-parter, but... I haven't heard anything uh, that says it's just going to be two or that it's going to be three. I, I don't know. So I'm open to... That'd be dope if it were a trilogy, though. Because there, I think there were three books, if I'm not mistaken. There might be oh, like more. But I, I thought even be. more than that. There might be five. Okay, so then there may be more than, yeah, I don't know how many there were, but to fit all of that, that's kind of tough. No movie can ever fit an entire novel in. Yeah, as we're getting towards the the end of the movie, um, Paul and Jessica, they flee on uh, the ornithopter and they they eventually crash in the middle of the desert. 
And that this is where they, they kind of have to camp out. And Paul introduces her to the Sandwalk, which I thought it was it was a pretty brilliant idea in and of itself, because the whole danger with the sandworms is that they can they have they're so sensitive to sound. They're constantly hearing different uh, noises that are happening in the dunes and they're so intelligent that they can recognize footsteps like human footsteps. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as they recognize that, they just start darting towards that location and, and ingesting everything in its path. So the sandwalk concept is designed to be able to hide your your journey through the dunes and make it seem like there is nothing there. Because I think it's supposed to make it seem like it's just random movements happening. So it doesn't feel like a human is traversing. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like the winds. You just fly under the radar. The worms don't pay any attention to it. And right. I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, like that, that if you lived on a planet like that, you would need something like that. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Unless you wanted to be found right again to, to use it as a mode of transportation. Hmm. Oh yeah. Then you're, then you're like, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go for a trip. All right. Let me just stomp around. <laughs> desert power. Desert power. Right. <laughs> and that's interesting too, to harness desert power going back to that real fast, just because the, the the source of power, the spice, is there on that planet. If you can harness desert power, so much power comes from the spice that to to be able to have that desert power is is more powerful than if you were the Harkonnen, who never took interest in finding out how to harness that power, but just uh, were oppressors. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, um, these things are like designed to to be on this planet, you know. And I almost feel mm-hmm. like they were. Maybe they were created by the planet to protect itself. Like this was there the planet's defense mechanism. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, they she, they say ancient. Um, I mean, they look like dinosaurs for fuck's sake. But like, uh, <laughs> so who knows how long they've been there. And yeah, so these, yeah to, to know that these things exist there and to use them. Um, around this time, though, I did think it was... There's like a long period of this film towards the end, like after after they crash and they're just kind of trying to survive in the desert where Jessica just isn't really saying anything. It's just all Paul ordering her around. And if it felt very strange to me, like Paul was guiding around like he had Jessica captive, captive. and he was just forcing mm-hmm. her to travel with him through this desert. She didn't feel like a parent around this this portion of the film. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't right. know, like, what do you think? I, I felt like, does, does Jessica just not have any survival skills? I get that Paul is more familiar with the planet because he was educating himself on what mm-hmm. Arrakis was and, like, what it was about. But you would think, like, maybe her superior clairvoyance would come in handy right about now. I, I don't know how how clairvoyant she is, though. That's the thing. So I, I'm not sure if she knows how to navigate. That. I mean, she's she's a tough fighter. That much we know. So she's trained in, in hand-to-hand combat. So we know that part. Um, also know that she's got uh, the voice. But who knows? I mean, she's a concubine. So maybe she only grew up in a temple. Maybe she only grew up in civilized areas. And she just maybe feels out of her element here. She feels so exposed. Her The love of her life has been murdered. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's a hard ass when it comes to, again, getting those guys, killing those guys in the helicopter, in the ornithopter, as it were. But um, after that, it's kind of like, I, I, I get the sense she's, she's pensive. She's kind of just taking it all in. It's, it, it's a lot to take in that, you know, the, everything that's happened with her, her, her husband or her, her would-be husband dying. They're out on the lamb. They're, they could be killed at any moment. Um, 
we all face these things differently. So it could be a little bit of that. And it could also be just seeing her son becoming the man that he's meant to be and watching this kind of all unfold for her. Maybe his clairvoyance is, is already getting to a point where it's surpassing hers. Right. Like exactly. She can't see the, the bigger picture. He, he's confident. He's confident. The more he, the more he possesses who he is, the more he, he get, begins to embrace what his role is and, and, and his place in all of it. Um, the more he gets more com- the more confident he becomes, right? As he begins to see how he's able to get these visions, he's he begins to trust them more. Mm-hmm. Remember, he talks to that woman, the that one nun. I forget what her name is, but the freaky, the, the one that put has him the, put the hand the in the mother, box, right? Reverend. The mother, yeah, the Reverend Mother. She she asks him about his dreams, and he's like, and he kind of looks down, eyes cast, you know, and it's like, well, or eyes cast downward, I should say, and he's just kind of like, well, yeah, sometimes I mean, my dreams aren't all true. But it's like there's a switch in him from that point later on in the movie. He begin you 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 begin to see that he is accepting it rather yeah, than just he, being he like, doesn't oh, fight it's it just as a much. Thing. It's like a parlor trick. He isn't not only does he not fight it, but he trusts it. And so as he begins to trust that, and he begins to trust his hand to hand combat skills and his ingenuity, he's only proving to himself who he really is. He's beginning to accept it. As awkward as it seemed to me, anyway, Jessica, around this time in the, the film, like how she just kind of following him around, but like not saying anything for a good, what, like five, 10 minutes. Um, that scene when they narrowly escaped the sandworm by fleeing to that rock formation, that little like rock mountain thing in the middle of the desert, that was a pretty tense scene and it was mm. it was pretty awesome you get that visual of course they've been they've been mentioning the threat <laughs> of the sandworms this whole time and then now it here it is it pops up again it picks up on their location and it starts right. uh trying to attack them and then they eventually get to that rock and then for whatever reason why does it come up out of the sand and just stare at them well i, I say stare but i don't think it has eyes it was just like pointing its mouth towards them right you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know. I, I don't know how much it Do you knows. think it can sense something in Paul, maybe? Like, it's like, it's not quite sure what, what it is that Paul is. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It. Who knows what levels of perception it does have, though? Having Being so ancient, who knows how connected it is to people? You know, it does give them rides, right? But... You know, like the dragons, right? They're the in, in um, Game of Thrones. They're supposed to be the, the more intelligent than human beings, and yet they allow themselves to 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 be used, right? By the by the human beings, they they allow them to on their back. They have and that they mutual fly, understanding. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. like, are these worms just dumb things that just, oh, we're gonna go to this thing because it's thumping, or or or, or can they be more? Are are they able to perceive things in a way that we don't understand? that they're able to do or at least the, at this point we don't understand or don't know that they can do but yeah they just stands there and so it's not just that it didn't want to attack it's it's like maybe maybe it's that simple maybe it was just like oh i'm gonna end up trouncing you know stomping my face <laughs> on this stone because he's standing on a rock so maybe it's just like i don't want to do that because it's it looks like it's going to kill him and then they say oh it's my my forget what they call that thing though they're like, oh yeah, my whatever saved you. Mm. That's why. That's why you guys survived. My this saved you because it, it draws yeah, its yeah. attention away and it leaves. Oh yeah, I think it was a thumper. Didn't they set off a thumper nearby and it, it went to go attack that? They did. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, that guy claims that. But again, does he really know that, or is he maybe unaware of a connection that the worm has with the chosen one? Imagine if you could communicate with them psychically. You can just draw them in. I wonder if that could, that's going to be that could be used as a weapon. Maybe he can use the voice. Oh, yeah, maybe shit. he can use the voice yeah. on them too. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 
What about when Stilgar and the Fremen show up and they have that lack of trust with with Jessica and Paul? Like they they initially just want to kill them because they they don't know what they're there for. They don't know whose side they're on, and they just know that they're foreigners, they're invaders. Well, sort sort of. It's more like remember it's it's Javier Bardem's character. I don't know his Stilgar. name. Stilgar. Stilgar. Okay. Yeah. So Stilgar. He's willing to speak on their behalf. He just goes, "All right, all right, yeah, you, I've seen, I know who you are, and uh, and we're cool. Look, I'll speak, I'll, I'll, I'll vouch for you. We'll just take you back to our place and whatever." And then that other he dude still seems kind of timid, up. though. Like I, I feel like Stilgar's relationship was only with the dad. Like the only the only people he knew and maybe somewhat trusted was Duncan Idaho and right. Duke Leto. I, I feel like he didn't have any relationship with Jessica or Paul at this point, but. It's still interesting that he was willing to take them back to his place. Give there them is a chance. Little, there is a there is a level of trust there. He's willing to take a chance on them, willing to take a risk. You know, he cuts himself, mm-hmm. right? That's what they do. They show they like he's he's with me. Where I'm going to cut myself, and they all cut themselves, right? Boom, showing we accept, we are in alignment with you. We understand that we will not fuck with these people because you speak on their behalf. And this is this is where uh, we finally, finally meet Cheney <laughs> in flesh and right, blood. Right. Yeah. Flesh and blood. It's been like leading up to it. It's been this, el- she's been this elusive woman, you know. It's weird because it seems like she's almost like the one guiding him just unknowingly. Like she's speaking to him in his visions, maybe from the future, but at this point mm. in time, she doesn't even know who the hell he is. He knows who she is and he recognizes her immediately. He's like, holy shit, you're the one that I've been dreaming about. Right, and so he right. knows that there's something important, something about this girl. He needs to pursue that and find out more about like, who is she? Why do I need to know her? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess that's yeah. what the second movie is is going to dive into because they don't really. She she pops up and all, all you find out is that. Her name is Cheney, but like other than that, you don't really see a whole lot of her. She doesn't really do a whole lot in the movie. She just pops mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's interesting though too because although they didn't show her much, and uh, yeah, granted in the trailers they showed her more. They showed her more. Excuse me. It's kind of like now we have this anticipation. Now we're kind of like wondering, okay, how how cool is this relationship going to be? How cool is she going to be? Mm-hmm. All that stuff. We're, 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 there's a lot of wheels turning. There are a lot of questions in our heads now because of what little they did show us mm-hmm. uh, of his premonitions of, of what's going to come with her. And yeah, what little we did get to see of her interact with what him. What role is she going to play? And obviously it, they, they foreshadow right. and I would, I would even say spoil the second movie in the way that you already know they're going to have a romantic relationship because you see that in the visions. Right, exactly. So that definitely... So that's no mystery. Is, uh, no mystery. And, uh, but, you know, who knows? Not all his dreams come true, remember? That's true because it, he has the vision about fighting one of the Fremen at this rock. And there's that guy that doesn't trust him and he keeps challenging Jessica and Paul. And so finally... Um, Paul agrees to fight this guy as Jessica's champion, right? Mm-hmm. And in his vision, it goes differently. Does yeah. he let the guy win in his vision, or does he actually lose the fight? You know, that's an un. That's I. I couldn't tell. That's a good question. I was going to say that he lost the fight, but but the but he in in his vision he lost the fight. But whether that was intentional mm-hmm. or not, I don't know. I don't know. And what I thought, at least what I interpreted from that vision was that 
when he fights this guy, he's actually going to get killed. Like he's this guy, this Fremen is going to kill him. And then he's going to somehow mm-hmm. stand back up and he's going to, that's how he ascends into becoming the one. But then when he actually fights him in real life, he actually beats him quite easily. Like I almost feel like he went against that vision and he was just like, nah, I ain't fucking losing this punk takes him out and yeah and that that leaves more of a mystery as to like all right so where where does the timeline go from here because that was a possible possible outcome and that didn't happen but it comes down to like you said that's a really good point it comes down to choice he he he's like he chose that he's like no i'm not gonna get killed by this guy because ultimately that's what it is 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 he can see these things but it's his choice in kind of what direction to go so he sees if he makes one choice this is how this is going to go um, but he decides, okay, he's already seen the fight play out at least vaguely. I don't know how detailed, I mean, cause it shows little b- bits and pieces. Maybe he saw more than what we showed on the, on the screen. So maybe he's kind of like Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> you know, a la Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and can, can ca- kind of figure it out. Well, cause he literally saw the fight. Maybe he can, maybe he actually saw like, okay, he's going to do this move and I'll just need to do this move to counter him and then I'll win. You know, and so maybe that's what it was because he did see the kind of the death blow. He did he did see where it, what leads up to him getting stabbed. So maybe right. he saw that technique and realized this is how I'll sidestep that. This is how I'll avoid that and and get him because anytime you go for a a, a move, even in jujitsu, they talk about that Brazilian jujitsu. When you make a move, no matter what you do, there's always a counter to it. It's just whether or not the other person sees the opening. It also kind of makes me wonder too, because he also had visions of being this very skilled fighter. He's wearing this like uh, Paul I'm talking about. He has this like gold armor and he's just like mowing guys down with ease, right? Just out in the middle yeah. of the battlefield. And I wonder if is that still going to be the case because he didn't lose to this guy. Him fighting, I think that's what they they prophesized as the holy war, right? Right. I think right. that's what they, they called it. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, is the Holy Warrior still going to happen? Is he still going to be the skilled fighter? Because maybe he was supposed to lose early on so that way he can ascend sooner. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll have to just wait and see for sure. It's going to be interesting. Because that was a dope ass scene when he's like flipping over guys' backs and shit. He's like just, whew, just slicing them Because you, you don't immediately know that's Paul like because he has this face mask on. Right. Not until he takes that mask off and you're just like, oh shit. And he sees himself. He's like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's me. I'm fucking kicking ass. That's a badass warrior down there. Oh, shit. It's me. That armor kind of looked like Iron Man, just like a gold version of Iron Man. Yeah, it kind of looked like that. Or uh, or maybe some uh, VR troopers. Yeah, <laughs> VR troopers. <laughs> Do you remember VR troopers? Dude, we are VR. That's right. Yeah, dude, that was such a corny ass show. <laughs> How I loved it as a kid. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I loved it. I was like, fuck Power Rangers, dude. I'm all about VR Troopers. I thought I was the only one that was into VR Troopers, honestly. Dude, I was fucking in love with VR Troopers. That shit was that was shit was dope. It was just more Power Rangers, essentially. <laughs> How fucking dare you, dude? How well, dare I love, you? I loved Power Rangers as a kid. Right, me too. After that, yeah, after Paul dispatches that Fremen with ease. Um, in a VR Trooper suit. This is where it links up with VR Troopers. Jessica was still hesitant to go with the Fremen. She was saying like, hey, we should we should just go on our own path and, and try to get off this planet. I think this is where Paul actually like trusts in his visions to follow Cheney. He knows that there's something about this girl. I need to I need to go with her and I need to pursue this. 
And, you know, eventually he convinces Jessica to go with Stolgar and the Freeman or in the Fremen. So to wherever the, the fuck they're going, I think they're going to like their their like main encampment or something. Right. He lives in a lair. Yes. Yes. They're going to their encampment. Um, um, she's still clinging to the old world, to the old way. She is older. She feels comfortable with that. And mm. he's the youth. He's he's the future. And he is comfortable with the unknown. He wants to move in this direction that his father sent him on. That they're there for. He sees himself being there for a reason. She wants to cling to what's safe. So it does take a little kind of convincing on his part to sh- mm. to get her to kind of come on board. Um, so maybe that's a little bit what it was. Again, she's she's still feeling wounded. She's she's in that kind of headspace. You know, for sure. up until then, she felt confident because. They were living in a world. She thought that she was, had everything figured out. Precisely, she thought she had everything figured out. Everything was lined up. She had a, she had a, you know, prestige, and um, she felt safe and was very affluent. And now all of a sudden, they're in. They're destitute. They're basically destitute. They're on a de- a, a, little, a sand planet, and um, they don't know if they can trust anybody. They're around people who don't trust them, and so she, her reaction is like, "Fuck you, we don't trust you either." Yeah. And he's like, "I want to win your trust." I see the potential and mm. I want us to, to unite. And she's still kind of like apprehensive, but it's going to be what choice does she have? Yeah. I'm curious as to what's going to happen next. And I think that that was the whole point of it splitting right here. Like this was the, the end of the first movie. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different paths that they could take with this, like a lot of different scenarios that could happen. Is Stolgar gonna now take over as being like the mentor and kind of teach him the Fremen ways. Um, you know what's going to lead to him being this badass warrior guy that's like just murking fools with his gold armor and where does he get that yeah, armor true. too yeah yep 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 looks nothing like i mean it looks only barely like it <laughs> <laughs> looks nothing like it um but yeah yeah where and also the relationship with cheney you know like obviously that's that's likely going to happen unless he decides to go against that as well. Right. We'll see how that develops for sure. But I have a feeling it's going to be a combination of a few different guides in his life that are going to show him how to, how to win this war with the Harkonnen and against the emperor. I mean, not just the Harkonnen, it's really the emperor who's at play here. Who's who needs to be defeated. He's the top dog. Yeah. And that, that means that they're going to have to take the, the battle off planet. I don't think that the council is going to be going to Arrakis, you know, exactly sorry sirens in the background were <laughs> bleeding through to the mic but yeah yeah we'll see again the emperor is just uh we haven't even seen the emperor no yeah not not really like you you only briefly encounter the council at the beginning and then you don't really see right. him again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah then they only kind of allude to who he is and or like you know what he wants right right so that might that might be this the third movie that you're talking about maybe the second movie is just going to be them versus the harkonnens and then after that they're going to go for the big dog. I feel like that would be a, uh, yeah, I just feel like I think it would be a lot to have to do in a second movie to defeat the Harkonnen and then to, yeah, I, I mean, who knows where they're going to fight them at? I, I, I don't know if they'll be fighting them on their planet because, I mean, they could always save people on the on the Harkonnen planet. I forget what their planet's called. Do you remember? Whose planet? House of Trades? The Harkonnen. Oh, the Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they're from. I forgot. Do they mention them? Yeah. They're on that like cold ass. Yeah, they show them they, when they when they take them to their planet because that's when David Batista is like, they're, "We're giving everything to them. <laughs> we're we're just gonna let them take it." But yeah, I just think it would be a lot to. I don't know. There's a lot of ground to cover in in just one movie yeah. if they only do a second one. Definitely. 
Which is good. I mean, you would rather have too much to to cover than like not enough <laughs> trying to stretch just very little into a whole movie, you know. Right, and they have a, they have plenty. That's a wrap on Dune 2021. Yeah. If you made it to the end of this podcast, then you want yourself a relaxing, invigorating, soothingly goopy one-hour tar bath alongside the Baron himself. Man, <laughs> I want that tar bath. Any, any final thoughts or closing comments? No, I'm just looking forward to seeing the next one for sure. Um, I, I thought this movie was just... I don't know, head and shoulders above anything I've seen in sci-fi in, in a long time. If I don't know if ever. If there's so much depth here um, to this movie. This whole story is just captivating. I'm, I'm seriously going to read the novels before long. Did you think that the the foreshadowing that they did in the visions was, was too spoilery at all? Because you obviously know what it's going to look like and what's going to happen in some fashion. So I feel like, you know, knowing that Atreides is going to be this badass fighter guy eventually. Do you think it takes away from the impact of it? Or do you do you feel like the journey of watching him build up yes. into that is going to be the interesting part? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's like knowing a little bit of it. It's like it's enough to whet the appetite. Okay. You go, oh, shit, that's where he goes. How, how does he get there? I want to know how. That's the question you're asking. Mm. How and if he'll get there. Like you said, because ultimately he, we know his dreams, not all his dreams come true. So yeah. maybe, maybe that scene doesn't play out exactly that way. Maybe it's a, di- maybe it never even comes to blows. Maybe, maybe they avoid that altogether and they end up not even fighting there, but on a separate planet. I mean, I, I don't know. The possibilities are all out there, but at the very least, we know he ascends to, to be this really, really, I keep saying ascend. He becomes this <laughs> fucking great fighter, greater than he already is, leading men into battle. And, uh, we just don't know how he gets there. So yeah, I think that's going to be, I don't think it's spoiling anything. I think it just gets everybody in, interested that much more. Yeah. What's that appetite? Um, I did think that the film overall was, was engrossing, but you know, towards the end of the, the movie, it felt a little slow for me. I think around the time mm-hmm. that the, the Harkonnens pop back up and catch House Atreides off guard, pretty much after the voice, because the voice w- was a pretty cool scene. But after that, it seemed like it kind of slowed down quite a bit for me. And mm-hmm. um, where, whereas like early on, I was like all in and I was I was so engaged. But then I don't know, the, the movie felt long for me, maybe a little bit too long winded. It, it seemed like it could have ended a a little bit sooner, maybe like 15 minutes sooner. But I get that they, they want to take their time and they want to set up the second movie properly. So there was a certain mm. way that they wanted to end it. They didn't want to end it on like this huge cliffhanger. It was just the the intrigue of the second movie is going to be, all right, how is he going to develop now? You know, we know what the possibilities could be, but how does he get there? You know, it's so I think that's mm. where the the intrigue that's where that carrot at the end of the stick comes into play mm. <laughs> you know what's funny is i think i noticed when it got slow too i'm on on on, I'm on that same wavelength I, I i remember it starting to feel a little bit slow but i remember when that started to happen i immediately like looked at my my wristwatch i was like oh my gosh I have a feeling it's going to end soon. And I remember what I remembered at the time. I don't know now, but I remember what the runtime was. And so I was like, oh shit, I knew when it was going to end. I mean, I I'd looked at my watch before and knew, okay, it's going to end around this time. And sure enough, I was like, oh fuck, we're, we're getting close. I didn't want it to end. Oh, okay. I was like, even though it started to get slow, it was, it was only slow enough to kind of bring me out of a dream. So sort of. I felt like I was dreaming until then. And I felt like, oh shit. Oh, it got slow enough to, oh, oh, look, oh God, it's going to be over soon. And you know, w- with most movies, you, it's not going to be, just this roller coaster ride all the way through. It has to 
it has to slow down quite a bit in order to be able to pick back up, you know, and otherwise it's, it's just gonna, you're going to be numb to it the entire rest of the film. So I get that it was, yeah, it, it needed to slow down and have some more character development and whatnot, but it was a little strange that it was at the very end of the film. I thought they would have wanted to end on like a pretty higher energy or a faster paced tone, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's fine if the second movie just kind of picks up from that that slower pace and then just builds right up back into that drop that everyone's going to be expecting, and then it's just going to be fun ride from the rest of the movie. So, if it's going to be reverse in the second movie, I think I'll be all right with it. So mm-hmm. it makes sense if it's gonna it it's slowing down so that way it can pick back up towards the end. Yeah, it's like reach a crescendo. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly. Or or if there's going to be right multiple of those kind of waves. Like you've explained it, like a waveform, just exactly. Because if there is a third one, then it's going to maybe follow the same path. Overall, yeah, I I thought it was enthralling, and the movie had a lot of intriguing elements. Like I was saying before, the shields, the spice, which I'm I'm still curious about, the sandworms, mm-hmm. and how like what's their purpose? How are how did they even come to be on this planet? Mm, Shout right, outs exactly. to the ornithopters. Yeah. <laughs> much respect much respect but seriously the uh the voice i thought that was just fucking cool like that was it was it was absolutely cool. such a at least i haven't seen anything like that so for me it was just a really original and pretty badass concept to have in this movie Agreed. a lot of cool shit going yeah. on yeah and um 100 um, you i think you already touched on this but you know the movie had a ton of hype behind it it had a big budget an ensemble cast, it, it lived up to the hype for you? you. You felt like it didn't disappoint? No, no. I mean, no, I, I, I saw it twice and both times I was still completely enthralled. Yeah. What about it's you? Same thing. Yeah. I, I was pretty stoked for it. And this is, this is from someone that had no knowledge of what Dune really was. I, I understood that it was a novel and that there was a movie based off of it that I think has a cult following. I think a lot of people enjoyed it. I don't think it mm-hmm. it did gangbusters by any means, but <laughs> <laughs> I think um, a lot of people really enjoyed it. My dad included. I think he had it on VHS or Betamax or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I personally thought just glancing at the David Lynch film, I was like, oh, that, that movie looks fucking boring. But, you know, I was a kid and as you get older, your tastes change. And I think I, mm-hmm. it, it, I think it was just striking at the right time. I was just in that that mood for a, a really interesting and captivating sci-fi movie. This movie happened to already be in production and it finally released around that time that I was I was just ready for the sci-fi movie to come out. Mm. I, I was looking for something that was going to be introducing interesting concepts. Just because it's sci-fi doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be in space all the time. A lot of it was just... Actually, most of it was just either the Atreides planet or it was Arrakis. Mm-hmm. It, there there mm-hmm. was no like space battle or anything going on. Lightsabers, mm-hmm. you know, it's it just felt refreshing to me. Yeah, same. It was doing stuff differently than what other sci-fi movies were doing. But the other sci-fi movies that have actually <laughs> adapted themselves from this movie <laughs> or from this story. Right, exactly. It's like, oh, this one, this, this is a reason why this one 
set the tone for so many and so many were so many tried to imitate different elements from it it's because it's that fucking cool of a story so it's no surprise it's like it's ref- it's funny that we say it's, that you say it's refreshing because i feel the same way i feel like it's refreshing but and yet this the irony is that this story's older old. than any of yeah, the other it predates everything yeah all the other stuff right right like fuck all this other shit was like sci-fi light this shit is like the meat this is like what it's about. Yeah. And how I, I kept bringing up like there's the movie was only able to touch on so much of the lore and me looking into it. I, I, I just felt the research that I did with this movie was just as interesting as the movie itself. You know, there was just mm. so much to unpack mm. and the, the lore was built out just reading about the, the concepts and the, the relationships. And it was it was pretty pretty fun, and I think that's probably the appeal of the novels themselves because it goes deeper into it. No, that's 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 cool. Yeah, I definitely am more intrigued. It's that one, and oh, I definitely want to read that one. I just don't know which one I want to read first because then there's Foundation, or yeah, Isaac Asimov. He, he's also just an amazing sci-fi writer. The TV show, right? That TV show dropped around the same time that they were remaking Dune. Right. Uh, you know, it, mm, it's like part of it, I wonder, is if the, an idea was already floating around. You know, these things are often shopped around so people know what's going on. Like, oh, this maybe this, maybe Warner Brothers didn't want to do, I don't know who produced it, maybe Fox and da 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 you know, You're shopping it around to different places. Um, or at the very least, word gets around, hey, this is what they're doing. Who knows? Who knows which came first, honestly? Foundation. Um, which one was in more? Which was in production sooner, or, or or not even in production, but which one was being floated around? I think for years and years, Dune has been floated around. I don't know how if that's been the case for Foundation, but um, that's the beauty of it is like what's old is new again because enough time has passed where people don't know about the, these things, and then so they're able to reintroduce it. Right, right. Here's a really good story. Here are really good stories, but also timely. You know, very timely, regardless of the time whether it's now or if it's in the future, in this dystopian future, there's still these kind of human struggles that are going on and some ideas to just think about. Mm. This has been Affliction Oz Podcast, Episode 9, Dune. Thanks for joining us again, and we will see you next time.